And now, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've long been fascinated by the call of the disciples in the Gospels. Here were the first people who decided to follow Jesus. At the time, there was no Christianity, no resurrection, no reports of Jesus' miracles or teachings. Instead, there was a moment, a meeting, and the disciples' lives were changed. What was it about those first disciples or about Jesus that made that connection? We're all familiar with the calling of the first disciples in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke. There we have Jesus walking beside the Sea of Galilee and calling four fishermen by telling them that he will make them fishers of men. It's a text that we'll get to look at next week. Today, however, we get to examine the call of the disciples as it's told in the Gospel of John. We meet Jesus as he's walking from the River Jordan, where he had just met John the Baptist, back home to Galilee. Once back in Galilee, he meets Philip. Now, we're not told much about Philip, just that he came from Bethsaida, the same town as Peter and Andrew. Philip's calling merits just one line. Jesus says, follow me, and Philip does it. But then the scene shifts, and we meet Nathanael. Nathanael is not, not initially sought out by Jesus. It's Philip who takes the lead. Excited by his new calling, Philip blurts out to Nathanael, that he has found the one whom Moses and the prophets predicted. It it is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael responds with that classic line, what good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, that small, insignificant little village not far away. It's much like if someone came to you and said, I found the Messiah. I found the one to save us all. He's from Pasadena. Pasadena, the savior of the world, is from Pasadena. Then Jesus finds Nathanael and wows him by telling him where he had been before they met. That was sitting under a fig tree. Amazed at Jesus's ability, Nathanael believes that Jesus is the one. He is the son of God and the king of Israel. There's one curious detail in the passage, however. One thing that I kept coming back to as I read it over again. This is the only place in the gospels where we find out something about about one of the men whom whom Jesus chose. It's the only place where we get a hint of what might have made them different. Perhaps you've wondered about this before. What made the disciples special? Why did Jesus choose them and not someone else? It's a logical thing to ask since we ourselves are disciples of Jesus. Would Jesus have chosen us if he were here today? If we want to be worthy of the calling, what is it we need to do? Who do we need to be? When Jesus first sees Nathanael, he says, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, or in whom there is no guile. That's what he says. Here is a man who has no guile, no deceit, and he is the one that I want to call as my disciple. We live in a culture where deceit is often praised. The goal is to get ahead, to be a success, to get all the attention. If lying can help with that, so be it. Through deceit, you can win the big negotiation. Think of the movie Wall Street that came out back in 1987. The director, Oliver Stone, meant it as a condemnation of Wall Street deceit. But instead, it became a cult classic among Wall Street traders. It reminds me of when I taught at Eton College in England. 
At Eton, the greatest high school in the English-speaking world, deceit was practically encouraged. If you could lie and get away with it, you were celebrated, at least by your peers. It was one thing about Eton that drove me mad. But Eton was a place where, you, where they taught you to get ahead. And sadly, deceit can be helpful in that process. But here, we have Nathaniel, a man without deceit. He's the model. He's the goal. Commentators have long wondered how Jesus knew that Nathaniel was one without guile. After all, this was the first time Jesus had laid eyes on him. Some think it was because of Jesus' special powers to see Nathaniel's past that he knew this key detail. But you know, I'd like to think it's something else, something far more significant for us. When I read this line, I, I read it not so much as that Daniel is one who doesn't lie. Instead, I read it as Nathaniel is someone without guile. You can see it on his face and in his demeanor. Nathaniel has authenticity. What you see is what you get. He's not a poser, not someone who likes to charm others and put on a show. Nathaniel is his own man, comfortable in his own skin. There's something about him that radiates confidence. He doesn't need to hide behind fancy clothes or an impressive title. There is Nathaniel, the chosen one who knows who he is. He's authentically himself. Now, this is no easy task. It's far easier to be someone who doesn't lie than to be someone with authenticity. Truly authentic people are rare. But if we are to believe this text, or at least my reading of it, it is this quality of authenticity that we should strive for if we want to be disciples of Jesus. The great existentialist writer Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about how finding authenticity was one of the biggest challenges for humans. We're constantly buffeted by expectations of others and from society to conform to their ideals. Few people are able to, trans to transcend these pressures to be their authentic selves, to exercise their freedom. Nearly all of us conform in one way or another, bow to forces outside ourselves. The truly authentic people, according to Sartre, are, stand out in their willingness to exercise their freedom regardless of outside pressures. There's something deeply alluring about this. What would it be like to flaunt what others might think of you, to live your deepest truth with a devil-may-care attitude? One of my friends embodies Sartre's ideal of authenticity. When describing him to others, I'll say, he marches to the beat of his own drum. He really does not care what others think of him. He dresses in his own unique style and is charting his own unique path through life, quite unlike anyone else I know. But in the process, he's become alienated from his parents, among others. Is that really what's required to be authentic? Do you really have to ignore all societal conventions and go it alone if you're to be your true self? We are members of various communities. To live and thrive in those communities does require some degree of compromise. That's not always a bad thing. So how are we to do it? How are we to live without guile? How are we supposed to be authentic to who we are? This is where it's helpful to turn to that great prophet of authenticity and Houston resident, Brene Brown. If anyone has spoken and written loudly in authenticity and what it looks like, it is she. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brown wrestles with the cultural moment that we're in. Today, according to many, we live in a time of narcissism. People seek attention, whether it be on social media or in our lives. This is, this is 
particularly a charge leveled against the younger generation. People are seemingly more self-centered than they were in the past. While there may be lots of reasons for this current trend, Brown blames it on the culture of scarcity. Narcissism and the need to tear down other people does not come from a place of power, but from the absence of it. The drive to artificially build ourselves up comes from a sense of unworthiness. We try to be someone we, we, try to be someone we are not in order to gain the approval of others. We think we are not good enough on our own and therefore need to create artificial ways to make ourselves feel better and more important. We deceive ourselves and others. The solution to this is authenticity. We have to be comfortable in our own skins with our own accomplishments. We have to wake up and remind ourselves that we are inherently worthy. When we are comfortable with who we are, then we can be our authentic selves. And the key to this, according to Brown, is our ability to be vulnerable. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all figured out. We all have our own foibles and, and idiosyncrasies. When we can be vulnerable, when we can put our authentic selves out there for others to see, we open up space for true connection with those people. Brown writes, Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity of purpose and deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, then vulnerability is the path. To be vulnerable, we have to overcome our tendency to hide our true selves. We have to overcome our instinct to deceive others into believing them that we're someone that we're not. According to Brown, the root cause of our unwillingness to be vulnerable our unwillingness to be authentic is shame. We are afraid to put ourselves out there in relationships, in our professional lives, because we are afraid that if people saw our true selves, we would be mocked or derided. We are too ashamed to be ourselves truly and authentically. Now, Brown makes a distinction between shame and guilt. Guilt is what we feel over something that we did wrong. We hurt someone else, and then we feel guilty about it. Shame is when we feel that we are somehow wrong. There's something wrong with us, something lacking, something defective. We will always do wrong things from time to time, and as a result, we'll always feel guilt. But we don't have to feel shame. Shame is something that we all wrestle with. Ever since we're children, we are taught the outlines of shame. Through her research, Brown has identified the different ways in which men and women experience shame. For women, according to Brown, it's about looking perfect and being perfect. It's about being judged by our mothers. It's about never being enough. It's about impossible expectations. It's about being excluded from the cool table. For men, shame is about failure. It's about being wrong. Shame is about showing weakness or fear. It's about being criticized or ridiculed. All of these things train us to feel shame, and that shame prevents us from being our authentic selves. We can't show our true selves because then everyone will see how we don't measure up. But by retreating behind carefully built walls, we prevent ourselves from truly connecting with others or from being our best selves. Brown lays out clearly how we are supposed to tackle our shame. The first thing we have to do is to recognize it in our lives and to name its triggers. 
The other day, I was talking with a good friend who told me about the shame he felt in self-expression. When he wore the clothes he wanted to wear at work, or when he shaved his legs, his work colleagues mocked him. So he learned to dress so as to fulfill their expectations of what it meant to be a preppy man. If he could hide, the part, if he could hide a part of himself, then he would be accepted. He mentioned how, after a tough breakup, he dealt with it in part by going to the gym. As he put on more muscle, people would tell him how great he looked and how much he had changed for the better. While he appreciated the compliments, it made him feel shame about his former skinnier self. If he stopped working out so much, would he still be accepted? When I was a kid in elementary school, I loved to read. <laughs> I know that's a shock. I especially loved history books, and I read them whenever I had the chance. Then, uh, when I was with other kids, I couldn't wait to tell them all the fascinating things that I had learned. Of course, it turns out that other elementary school kids weren't as interested as I was in Alexander the Great or the American Civil War. <laughs> as a result, I learned to keep my mouth shut and withdrew from the other kids. When I spoke about that which gave me joy or expressed it, I felt judged for it. I felt shame. Think of the shame that comes from the pressures to have a perfect marriage. No marriage is perfect. That's the ironic thing. No marriage is perfect, and we all know that. And yet, how full of shame do we get when things aren't going well in our marriage? We feel that if we mention anything about our marital struggles, then we'll be mocked or somehow seen as less than. Shame keeps it bottled up. Then there's the shame in not keeping up with the Joneses. We don't have the fancy new car, the house in just the right neighborhood, the right clothes, the kids in the right schools. We deflect, we hide. We don't want to be exposed for being less than others. We've all had to struggle at our jobs. Most of us have had, had to deal with periods of unemployment. Yet think of the shame that comes with being out of work or not succeeding at one job or another. If we're going to deal with shame, we have to be able to name it. We not only have to name it, but we also have to be critically aware, aware of when we're experiencing shame. Because all too often, we hide from our shame as best we can. We double down on work and work ourselves into the ground to prove that we can be perfect. We numb the feeling of shame with work or drinking or binge-watching TV shows or whatever is the way that you numb yourself. Interestingly, another way that we hide from shame is by oversharing. Something makes us ashamed and we tell everyone we meet about it or post about it on Facebook. That, in and of itself, is a means of self-protection. This is something that comes up sometimes when certain people come out of the closet. After people come out, they begin to dress and act as flamboyantly as possible so as to proclaim from the rooftops, I'm gay, I'm gay. It's a means of self-protection, though, in a lot of cases. You throw it in someone's face to cut off any criticism. That's not the way to deal with shame and find authenticity. The way that Brown recommends is to notice when shame is playing a role in your life and then reach out to those whom you trust. In a safe space, you articulate your source of shame and how you're reacting to it. The more you are able to name it and have the people close to you see you for who you are, the more resilient you become in dealing with shame. Shame is at its most powerful when it is hidden. 
It loses its strength when it can be shared and received in love. Then you build up the capacity to be yourself more authentically. You're able to be vulnerable and therefore create new connections with others. This is what makes 12-step programs so successful. Addiction in any form has a strong element of shame in it. You're ashamed of your addiction. You're ashamed of how you failed people in your life. You are ashamed of the things you have done. This only creates a cycle where the shame leads to more numbing, which in the case of an addict is the very thing that the person is addicted to. 12-step programs create a safe space where people who are going through similar things in life can share openly and honestly. You can talk about your failures and build up the strength to be your authentic and true self. And this is exactly what churches do when they're doing church right. Unfortunately, church is all too often a place where people feel the most shame. Churches can be deeply uncomfortable places to share our true selves for fear of being rejected because we're not saved in the right way. This is particularly true of evangelical Protestant churches. Since divorce is seen, either explicitly or implicitly, as a sin, you can't talk about your difficulties in your marriage or let anyone else see them. You can't talk about your gay son because that somehow means that you failed as a parent. You can't talk about addiction or mental health issues because then you're somehow defective. All of a sudden, the shame becomes all the more powerful and destructive. I want to do what I can to avoid that at FCC. I want FCC to be a place that nurtures authenticity and not shame. That is one of the big reasons why small groups matter so much in church. In a small group, you get to know people on a deeper level. You can create a safe space for sharing and vulnerability. It's amazing what happens when people feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable in a small group. I saw it happen in both of the groups that I helped lead this past year. When people shared things that were causing pain, it created amazing space for connection and care. People were being authentic in ways that are difficult in other settings at church. That authenticity is infectious. It's also healing. Now, this is a good time to mention that if you haven't signed up for a growth group yet, you should go online to our website and do so today. You won't regret it. When I close my eyes, I can picture the scene in Galilee. I can see Jesus walking up the dusty road to meet the man that Philip wanted him to meet. When Jesus sees Nathanael standing with a couple friends, he knows. He knows that look in his eyes, the look of someone who is comfortable with who he is. He sees in Nathanael someone with whom you can share your pain. There's no guile or deceit in Nathanael. He's a true Israelite. He's someone who's an authentic person. And when others meet him, when they see it, they want to be like him too. They want that same confidence and joy that Nathaniel has. He's an ideal person to have as a disciple. He is someone others will listen to, but also someone who will listen to others. Since he is comfortable with who he is, he is ready for the next place that God will lead him. I can see why Jesus chose Nathaniel. Now is the time to think how I can be more authentic myself. Jesus has already chosen me and also chosen you. He sees you as worthy. Can you do the same thing? Can you learn to be vulnerable? 
Can you see when shame rises within you and name that to those close to you? Be without guile. Be authentic. Let us live into the calling to be a disciple.